0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, November 25th, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. If you're hearing this as you travel to family or friends this Thanksgiving, please, please don't start any fights about public policy. But if you just can't help yourself, Mike Munger, Duke University Professor of Political Science, Public Policy and Economics, has a few ways you might raise the hackles of friends and family alike. We discussed for this special Thanksgiving Argument Edition of the Cato Podcast the bad judgments of consumers versus voters, and the wave of destruction that will surely sweep across America thanks to the sharing economy. So in keeping with uh, our limited series of Thanksgiving arguments that one might be subjected to or pick, and in the case of uh, libertarians, unfortunately, the option is quite often to pick the fight. So you argue that – well, first of all, consumers make bad choices every day, and they're not based they're not doing it for the right reasons their animal impulses
1: take over when they make purchases so this is a problem we're not very good at making judgments. we're used to if something is free, you should take all of it you can in fact, if something's free, you should choose that over something that you want more and uh the way that things are presented can influence the choice in a way that would violate the usual precepts of rational choice. And so my colleague, Dan Ariely at Duke, has written a book, several books, but one in particular, Predictably Irrational. The two features are people don't do very well in choice situations. And since marketers know this, they can use advertising and product placement to manipulate you as a consumer. So we need
0: to empower people to help us make better decisions, perhaps put some rails on the ability of marketers to speak to us in
1: particular ways. Clearly, well, my as, my, as I said, my colleague Dan Ariely sees a particular solution to this, and the, what the solution that he sees is in the mirror. Put Dan Ariely in charge, in effect, because. My counterargument to Dan, and Dan's a great guy. I don't, I don't mean in any way to say he's not, and his scholarship is probably correct. Consumers do not make these choices perfectly. But the thing to remember and the thing to engage your family with around the Thanksgiving table is every flaw. In consumers is worse in voters. Every flaw in consumers is worse in voters. That will bring them right out of their turkey coma.
0: All right. So I mean, the, there's a cartoon that I've seen what, that, where it's somebody from a stage saying, "Who wants change?" and everybody raises their hand. And the next panel is, "Who wants to change?" So the decisions that we make as voters, how do we keep our impulses? in check when we step into the voting booth.
1: Let's suppose that the things that Dan Ariely has listed are correct. We can be manipulated by ads and product placement. But fortunately, politicians always tell the truth and political ads are scrupulously fair, said no one ever. The fact is we have no way of checking those. At least if I buy a car and it's a bad car, I know objectively what that means. I get feedback. But if I buy a political party then I can't really tell because I don't get feedback. And it doesn't matter whether I did research or not because my vote doesn't determine the outcome, whereas in the marketplace, my vote does determine which one I get. So if we want to put voters in charge of consumers, we're making a bad choice. All right. So like if we voted on what car to buy, we'd all end up with a a beige Toyota Corolla. That wouldn't run. And we wouldn't care because if we voted differently, probably what we would do is, is vote for a car that looks like a unicorn or a, a car that looks like something that just appeals to us because we wouldn't be riding in that car. That would just be a choice that was made by us as a group. The other thing is, and Dan Ariely right, we like free stuff. And so if some politician tells us I'm going to give you stuff for free. Well, we'll vote for that, but nothing's free. One of the things that we know from economics is that nothing's free, and if nothing else, we're going to pay for it with deficits on future generations. So if you want to, you can look down to the kids' table from your Thanksgiving feast and say, all right, we're taking free stuff because we're irrational voters. You kids down at the kids' table, you need to start getting jobs because you're going to have to pay for our misspent uh, youth. I'm thinking, how would we, in
0: a representative republic, price the put option that we have for the various benefits we incur today and impose the costs on
1: somebody else? Trevor well, Here's really the only point that I'm trying to make, and this will be a little bit less contentious. So now that you have all the relatives upset, you can just admit, we have a problem with making choices as human beings. And all I'm asking for is a little bit of humility. George Stigler had a story where a Roman emperor looked – If he went to a contest and there were two minstrels and they were supposed to have a contest to see who could sing better. And the first one sang and the Roman emperor said, oh, God, that was terrible. Give the prize to the second. That's what Dan Ariely is doing. He's looking at markets and saying there's problems with them. Let's have democracy do it democracy often does things even worse let's compare the way that these two things actually are and recognize that in some settings markets actually perform pretty well precisely because the world is imperfect so the question that you asked how would we price this Markets generate prices which are imperfect, but useful signals about the relative scarcity of resources. In politics, we don't have that. We make even worse choices. So if it's something that's a kind of collective choice we have to choose all at once, maybe you would consider voting. But the idea that voters can regulate consumers is just crazy. It's going to make things worse, not better. So if you wanted to start this fight with your family,
0: would you say democracy sucks? I would say... Using democracy to regulate markets is a fool's errand. A lot of libertarians wax poetic about the sharing economy. Rhapsodic.
1: They actually rhapsodize it. Fair
0: fair (laughs) point. So the the idea that the sharing economy is going to uh, deliver us from top-down structures, be it hotels or taxi cab medallion monopolies or in general just having work done around the house. So... Uh, but the the significant downside, a very real downside, is that a lot of people will be put out of work, and a lot of those jobs are going away
1: forever. The, the, the job itself is going to disappear. It, it, it's not that someone else is going to do it. The job itself is going to disappear. I think there's two things that are going to happen, and it's interesting to think about both. Now, you probably know the story, but in... Uh, it's always nice at Thanksgiving to be able to tell an etymological story about the origin of a word. So, in, in northern France and Belgium, in during the early parts of the Industrial Revolution, there was a move towards power looms. Until now, people had used hand looms and those people were peasants and they wore wooden shoes called sabots, S-A-B-O-T, well, they would take those shoes. And once power looms started to come in and kicked them out of their jobs, and those jobs were never coming back, those hand looms were never going to come back, they would protest, and they would go to the places where the power looms were being constructed. They were called mules and spinning jennies, and they would throw their shoes into the wooden gears. Well, the act of doing that is sabotage. So if we, if we break something by... Uh, protesting against economic progress and trying to hold it back. We can delay it, but we probably won't save our jobs. All we're going to do is break things. So in the short run, we'll see sabotage. We'll see attempts by cities, and Paris in particular has gone a pretty long way along down this road, prevent Uber, prevent Lyft. Uh, prevent Airbnb, so the, the sort of companies that find ways to make profits by selling reductions in transactions costs, they're going to be sabotaged by the existing structures that have rents that have been promised to them by the state. And in some cases, I have to say I'm a little bit sympathetic to this. If you bought a taxi medallion in good faith... That's a promise by the state that you, but only you, if you have a medallion, can drive a taxi. And it's, now,
0: a, it's an asset that's created by the state.
1: It was, But in a way, any piece of paper that's a title is like that. I have a piece of property south of Pittsburgh, North Carolina. If somebody were to take my trees, I'd be pretty upset. And if they said, yeah, but it's cheaper for consumers, well, I really don't care. I've invested in these trees. I've tried to take care of this property. Taxi drivers going to have the same reaction. And to some extent, they have a point. Maybe we owe... Not property, but a rule of law consideration. If we're going to make promises that people in good faith act on, then maybe we should be a little more worried about that. But that's really a short run consideration.
0: In, in in some sense, it's similar to uh, tobacco quota. Exactly, that has existed for a very long time. At uh, Mitch McConnell. Uh, orchestrated a buyout for
1: the people who, who possess that quota. Because whether or not you agreed with it, it was created by a promise by the state, and you had acted on it in good faith, and maybe I purchased a tobacco quota from you, and it had value by virtue of that promise for protection, we paid for it. Now, maybe we shouldn't have made the promise to begin with, but once you have, you're obliged to keep it. I think that's a good analogy. In fact, it's a perfect one because even if it's a promise, you think, don't make promises like that. Once you have, rule of law says you have to pay for it. So that's kind of a short-run consideration. The interesting question in the long run is, suppose that that kind of sabotage is swept away and the sharing economy actually comes to be. The, The thing about the sharing economy is that we're likely to rent a lot of things that we now own. The reason that so many of us buy things is that transactions cost prevent or make it not practical for us to rent. So I I have a car, it has a garage and a parking space and if you look around D.C. there's a lot of space that's taken up by parking spaces and you have underground garages. All these cars sit around, they're not really used. Let's suppose the sharing economy really takes hold and everything from power drills to cars to apartments, all of those things we rent rather than own. Consequence will be a whole lot of jobs that right now are devoted to the making of stuff will go away forever. Now that'll have two effects. One is that wages will fall dramatically, nominal wages. But economists tend to be worried about real wages and that's the ray of hope. Real wages are the ratio of nominal wages to prices. So if my wage falls, but price falls by more, I'm actually better off. So since I'll be able to rent stuff at a tenth or a hundredth of the price of owning it, and my wages fall, what will be the net effect? Well, it's not clear. There there, there might be a, a, a very silver lining inside this dark cloud. If for most people prices fall dramatically and they don't need to own stuff then our lives can be simpler. We might be able to work just 10 hours a week. But many people who right now have jobs manufacturing stuff won't be working any hours a week. So it's easy for people like me to rhapsodize about how in the sharing economy everything's going to be better. Well, that's not true. For many people it's going to be worse. And the question is how to handle the effects of that very disruptive change in technology, which the same thing happened after the Industrial Revolution. There's this irresistible set of changes that people try to sabotage for a while. But eventually, the very structure of society itself is changed in ways that were hard to predict for the people who were living through it. And if those changes are hard to predict, your fancy supply
0: and demand diagrams are not going to account for... The things that we might lose that we don't fully appreciate now, but we will
1: appreciate having had them when they are gone. First of all, it's unkind of you to criticize my fancy supply and demand diagrams. I think that's that You're quite right, but but it's true. So economists are going to try to use those things to predict. Your point is a deep one. We actually can't use existing models to make pre- useful predictions about a future that we can't model very well. Probably what's going to happen is that a lot of things that we now think of as being outside of the zone of being commodities will be rented because the transactions cost of exchanging them will be reduced so far that I'll be able to rent things that until now I we, we just threw away. But I think the main thing the, the, and the, the good side of that is – a lot of things that we have thrown away will become useful enough as transactions costs fall, as software platforms allow us to sell reductions in transactions cost. A whole lot of things that are now wasted will be used. So I won't have a bunch of stuff sitting around in my garage, which I do. I'll be able to sell it very cheaply.
0: Michael Munger is Professor of Political Science, Public Policy, and Economics at Duke University. Learn more about the choices of irrational voters at Cato.org.